Now, how many remember playing the game Guess Who at some point growing up? Maybe you called it by a different title, but you describe someone and the other people, the other person, they have to, they have to uh, name the person that you're describing. So, so we're going to do that to get started. If I were to tell you that he has a receding hairline, you, you, about a third of the crowd comes to your mind. You're looking at the guy next to you. Well, it could be him. A lot of people have a receding hairline. I don't, praise God. He has a receding hairline. Let, let's say that he is just a little bit height impaired. In fact, uh, one, one of the things about him is that he, he's, by his own acclaim, he is socially awkward. And his awkwardness, though, his awkwardness, now you guys are already throwing out names. Now just hold on a second. <clears throat> but, but, but let's say that he uses that awkwardness to draw you into his message. It's becoming clear, right? Now, now this one's undeniable. This platform that I'm standing on, the, the reason why we have this platform is because of his height impairment. So that when he's up here, now who am I talking about? Brandon Dickerson. And if you were out, if you were out this past Wednesday night, you had a treat because you got to hear him preach. And it's been a couple of months since we got to hear him preach and he knocked it out of the park. So please just encourage Brandon Dickerson right now. I'm so glad. He's doing great over at Kai. That's Christian Academy of Indiana. He's doing great. He's not quite used to having a sixth grade audience, even though well, he should be used to it, right? <laughs> And uh, he's, he's doing so well, and he's going to be with us a few more times this fall and continuing on in the years to come. So you don't want to miss an opportunity when you see that he's up on deck to preach. Okay, let's, let's continue. Let, let's say that this, that this couple, this couple, man, man and wife, their son is very involved in the ministry here this morning. In fact, their son was in one of the classes back there, I think probably Bill Stone's uh, Bible study class this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll give you another clue. They are not from this area. In fact, they're, they're from some distance away. Uh, he owns a company that produces fire doors, and, and they distribute those doors. They're, they're unique doors. They distribute them all over the world. Do you know who I'm talking about yet? Ah, shh. All right, Bill. I'm surprised you didn't shout out Jesus, right? You know, just it's, it's always the church answer. So, so one, one more thing, says Bill's already let the cat out of the bag. Their son plays drums with us, and their daughter-in-law sings like an angel. I mean, right? Right? This morning, we're so blessed to have Ulrich and Anita Schroeders, Anetta Schroeders here with us, all the way from Germany. So let's welcome them. <clears throat> Turn with me in your Bible to Luke, the 23rd chapter. We're going to be in Luke 23, and we're also going to go back to Luke 22 for a little bit of background. It's a familiar passage, but I don't want you to take that for granted. In, in fact, it's one of those passages that we use a lot, especially around Easter time. And for those of you who are married to a pastor, those of you who have been married uh, or been, grew up in a family uh, where your dad or someone was a pastor, you know that Easter and Christmas are like the Super Bowl, you know, for, for preachers. It's a time we don't want to mess up. It's a time that we really get uptight about things. And so 
you know, every year I look at this passage and I'm like, okay, I know I've got to tell the same story again, but how am I going to do it better? And so I go to my wife and I say, Sarah, I'm starting to get anxious. And she has told me this, this over and over again for the last 17 years. This is going to be our, our 18th Easter coming up here. And I'm so excited about that. But she tells me every year, she's like, David, David, there's no need in you getting all uptight about this because nobody's going to listen to you anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. In fact, she goes on to say, she's like, they do not care about what you have to say. All they care about is who the family members that are sitting next to them. If it's Christmas time, it's the candlelight service. He said, so here's all you've got to do. It's not hard. Just get up and say, God loves you. The end. Amen. And that's it. That's it. And sometimes when we look at this passage, we do that. We just go straight to the line. Jesus, Jesus was wrongly accused. He was placed on the cross and he died for our sins. And yes, that is the message of this passage. But this weekend, I want you to look at it through a different lens. I want you to look at it through the lens of a man that could be described this way. Guess who he is? Bill, be quiet. <laughs> this man, the, the, this man is written about in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and he's also written about by the apostle Paul. He was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea, the head of the military, the judicial system, the minting of coins. He cares about what people think about him. Anybody here care about what people think of you? I do. So sometimes too much. He, he cared about what people thought. He wanted influence in his life. Anybody here want influence in their life? Well, we all want to influence our children. We want to influence the people that we work with. We, we want to make a mark on the world. We, we care about influence and we want a little bit of power in order to do that at different times in our lives. When he got in that position of having a little bit of power and a little bit of influence, he didn't want to lose it. And just like every one of us, he felt the pressure at times. And especially in this passage today, he felt the pressure. He felt the pressure to either go with what he knew in his conscience and in his heart and in his soul was true or to go with the world to go with what the crowd was shouting. And in a way, listen, we all live in that tension, don't we? We all have these predicaments in our life where in one hand we have our position, we have our influence, we have, we have this special opportunity this season in our life. And, and in the other hand, and on the other hand, we have this firm conviction inside that we know who we believe in and we're persuaded that he's able to keep that which we've committed to him up against that day. We all live in this tension. The man that we're going to look at today is the Pontius Pilate, the fifth, the fifth governor, the fifth prefect and the part known as Judea. He is the man who gave the green light for the execution of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. 
Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man. Now he's speaking of Jesus. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence. And if you underline in your Bible, this is a great line to underline. And have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, and we'll get to the backstory in a minute. For he sent him back to us, as you can see, Jesus has done nothing to deserve death. Verse 16. Therefore, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to punish him and then release him. Verse 18. But with one voice, under one voice, the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. In verse 19, Luke tells us who Barabbas is. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to the crowd again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 22, for the third time, Pilate spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate, verse 24, decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for and surrender Jesus to their will. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, as we read in your word about this man Pilate and about his tragic failure, a man who saw you face to face, Jesus, and knew your innocence, a man who was convicted in his conscience of your identity, yet caved to the noise of this world around him who wanted you dead. Father, we recognize the noise in our own life and a noise that's getting louder in this world. And today, God, may we be strengthened in the truth of your identity, and may we not make the same mistake as Pilate. Help us. Help us in these next few minutes to identify the crowd that's shouting loudest in our ears today and tune them out. And tune them out for the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, a little bit of background leading up to this passage. Jesus has been in his ministry for three years. Jesus has been speaking, and everywhere he went, he drew a crowd. Everywhere he went. From almost the very beginning, crowds would join him. They would follow him. They would chase him down. They would run out ahead of him just to be there when he arrived. There were crowds all around him. And the thing that bothered the people in charge the most was that Jesus was drawing the crowds instead of them. Now, who are the people that I'm talking about? They were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, if you will, of that day, the teachers of the law, the religious. They were upset because the people had once depended on them, right? 
It's just like today you go into some services and the person that's presenting God's word does so in a way that you can't even begin to comprehend it. And they like that because it gives them authority and power and control. And that's exactly the way that they love to lord the law over the people. And Jesus comes bringing this fresh message A message no different than the Old Testament taught us about God, but revealing it to the people in such a way that they could grasp it, they could get it. And so the crowds, the crowds were were being swayed and the crowds were following Jesus and the religious leaders didn't like this. And so they, they had to find a way to stop it. And you know how this works with the crowds around us today. I mean, the easiest thing for them to do would have been to take Jesus out in the dark alley and gut him one night. And just do away with him. But you know what? If word got out about that, well, the crowds would love him all the more. And so what do you have to do with a person like that? We do it all the time in our life. We have someone that that speaks a little bit differently or against something that we're doing. Let me tell you, we're feeling the heat these days speaking against some of the things that, that we need to speak against as a church. And so what do people do? They, they try to shut you down. They try to discredit you. And so that's what they do, and we know how they did it, right? They, 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 did it through, they did it through a man named Judas, one of the 12. Judas sold Jesus out. Verse 2 in chapter 22 says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Now, other translations, maybe the one that you're looking at in your Bible, actually describes it as they were seeking a way to put him to death. They needed a plan. They went to Judas. Who was the plan? Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus was arrested that night. You remember that part of the account? He had gone with his disciples to pray. Here comes Judas in with not just one or two, but with dozens of these religious leaders and and the Roman guards, and they, they come in and they, they arrest Jesus right there. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, claiming to be God. They led him away like a criminal. In chapter 22, verse 70, Jesus is brought before this council, this group of religious leaders to be questioned. They, they conduct this type of kangaroo court false accusations but they say things like if you they they say things like have you heard Jesus he claims to be God and and Jesus had said things like if you've seen me you've seen the father It, it was no secret he was God in the flesh I am the one the Old Testament prophets were writing about Jesus said and so they ask him in verse 70 they say are you then the son of God and Jesus said you're right I am You are right in saying that. And these religious leaders, they shout out, what more testimony do you need? Here he is. This guy claims to be the son of God, thereby claiming to be equal to God. That's blasphemy. And that's how they turn the crowd. All right? Here's this guy. Here's this guy claiming to be God. He's blaspheming the name of the Lord and so they charge him with blasphemy this turns the crowd against him they're on their way to getting rid of Jesus but there's a problem and the problem is is that they did not have the authority to not just imprison him 
but to kill him, to send him to the cross. And so what did they have to do? They knew that they would have to take him before the governing, the government authority, which were the Romans. And that's where Pilate comes in to the story. The kangaroo court brings Jesus before Pilate. And that's where we get to chapter 23, verse 1. Pilate, the Roman governor, the prefect over the region of Judea. And that's where they hit a stone wall because the government is not interested in their charge of blasphemy. And so what do they do? They begin to make up things. They begin to make up charges that they can present him with, guilty of, before a court so that they can put him to death. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse Jesus, saying, they accused him of three things. Number one, they say, we have found this man subverting our nation. He's creating an uprising. He's an insurrectionist. Ring, ring a bell. Who, who, who else is an insurrectionist right now who's already been proven guilty, who's in prison? Barabbas is. So they're accusing Jesus of, of causing an insurrection. Number two, he opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. And that meant something the same way it means something to every politician today. You don't want your tax base going away, do you? You, you want those tax dollars, don't you? But we know the truth. What had Jesus said? He had already answered that question a long time ago. Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. He never said, don't pay your taxes. And the third charge is he claims to be a king. And I can just see these losers, these religious leader losers saying, hey, you, you and I know, Romans, that, there, that there's only one king, and that's Caesar. You, you don't need another man claiming to be the king. And so Pilate examines Jesus. He conducts his first in his own investigation. He questions Jesus, and Pilate concludes that Jesus isn't guilty of any of the charges. Pilate sees right through their little show. Verse 4 says, I find no guilt in this man, no basis for the charges against him. But notice the religious leaders double down. They don't give up. Verse 5, they say, hey, hey, prefect. Hey, he is turning the crowd against you guys. He's got such a crowd of followers, it won't be long, and he's going to take over. And this, this is where I love that show, The Chosen. Now, listen. I know even some of our own people here have put things out on the Internet saying, you know, hey, don't watch that. That's terrible. It was made for TV, Okay. It's not the Bible. Get, get that. There, there is no accurate depiction by anything that comes out of Hollywood or anybody that's trying to be, that's not perfect, okay? But one of the things that I love about this, and I encourage you to watch it because it gives you such an amazing perspective. And that's what it is. It's a perspective. But the thing that I like about it is because it really shows us, I think, what it must have been like as these religious leaders go to this prefect, this governor, and say, hey, you, you don't want this guy. Look at the crowds. Look, look at the noise he's causing. You don't want word to get to Caesar about this. And so Pilate, he's no dummy. He's no dummy, and so he starts looking at the technicalities, and he realizes that Jesus is from Galilee, which is outside of his jurisdiction, and so he sends him over to a guy named Herod. Not Herod the Great, but Herod the Prefect, Herod the Governor. 
And he sends him over to Herod. And verse 8 says that Herod was thrilled. He had always wanted to meet Jesus. Why did he want to meet Jesus? Because Jesus had special powers. He had heard that Jesus could restore the blind. He had heard about the ruckus that Jesus was calling. His people who couldn't walk could now walk and see and skin diseases gone and were healed and made whole. And so he was thrilled to have Jesus before him because he hoped Jesus would do one of those magic shows for him and they could put it out on YouTube and he could be even more famous. And so he questions Jesus. Jesus doesn't do any magic tricks for him and he quickly loses interest. But not before he makes his own decision that Jesus is being falsely accused. He dresses Jesus up. He has him roughed up by his soldiers, his team, but they ultimately send him back to Pilate. And that brings us to our passage today. Jesus is back before Pilate, not for trial number one, not for trial number two, which he had before Herod, but for trial number three. And there was so much in this narrative about Pilate and this trial and all four gospels. But I want us to focus in on three simple things in the next few minutes. And the first is this. After examining Jesus, all of the evidence After examining Jesus thoroughly, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. After conducting his own investigation, after looking at the evidence, Pilate is certain, he's certain in his heart. You guys know what your conscience is, right? Your conscience is that thing inside of you. That part of you that when you're about to do something wrong, (laughs) when you stop on that channel or or when you darken the screen of your phone and you kind of slant it over to the side so nobody else sees what you're looking at or or doing, or you, you do something that your parents told you not to do and you're doing it, your heart starts to race for just a minute. Sometimes your hands get a little sweaty, right? You know what your you know what your conscience is. It's, it's that thing there that's to protect you. And, and I always say, once you come to Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's like your conscience on steroids, right? Pilate knew in his conscience, he knew in his heart of hearts that after conducting his own investigation, after looking at the evidence, he is certain that Jesus is innocent. Verse 13 You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence, you jokers. You were there. You saw the trial take place. You know these charges are bogus. You saw the cross-examination. I have found no basis for your charges against him. And by the way, neither has Herod. He took a look. He examined. He questioned him. And look, he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. So here's Pilate, the only man in the region who has the authority to inflict the death penalty on Jesus, to order a crucifixion, and he has thoroughly interrogated Jesus, and he is convinced in his heart of hearts that Jesus is innocent. Now let me ask you, do you hear Do you hear any lack of confidence in Pilate's verdict of not guilty? Do you read anything in there that says there was a question in Pilate's mind as to where Jesus was guilty or innocent? He is convinced 
He knows that he knows that Jesus is innocent. And that's the point for us today. The more you examine Jesus genuinely desiring the truth, the more that you and I examine Jesus genuinely desiring the truth, the more your conscience will confirm that the testimony of Jesus is indeed true. The more that you read his word, the more that you take his word and apply it to your life, and live against that challenge that we feel and that is very real sometimes in our life, the more we put it to the test, if you will, not testing God, but when he says, I want you to do this and you actually do it and then you deal with the consequences of doing it and you see that he's faithful and he's true, that's what I'm saying here. The more that you truly examine Jesus, genuinely desiring the truth, the more your conscience, your heart of hearts, will know that Jesus and the testimony of Jesus is indeed true. Pilate knew it. But in verse 16, Remember, in one hand, he had his power and authority, something that he had wanted since he was a child, something that every one of us wants. And now, in the other hand, he has his conscience. In one hand, he's got his conscience, and in the other hand, he's got the crowd. And he's got a safe face. And so he says, I'll placate the crowd. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, guys, in verse 16. I'll rough him up a little bit. I'll have my guys rough him up a little bit, and then I'm going to release him because he does not deserve the cross. He's innocent. <clears throat> now, let me ask you. Maybe you don't feel guilty of condemning Jesus to death, but haven't you roughed him up a little bit? Haven't we all at times? In fact, just complete the sentence. I roughed Jesus up a little bit when? I roughed him up a little bit when I've avoided tough conversations. When I knew I need to have a conversation with somebody, but I avoided it because, hey, those conversations aren't fun. <laughs> and I didn't trust him. I've roughed Jesus up a little bit when I, when I let fear get the best of me instead of trusting. I, I've got to tell you, it's tough to be a preacher these days, and I'm not whining. I'm just telling you the reality. You can do your best to love people and to show grace to them, and they come right back, and they turn things on you, and they treat you like a rug, and they just wipe their crap all over you. You know what it's like, those of you who serve the public and who give all of yourself for things. And so there are times, there are times when I'm like, man, if I just, if I keep going down that path, these people are going to get louder and louder and eventually that's going to hurt my family. That's, that's going to hurt my reputation. That's going to hurt sometimes. And sometimes I rough Jesus up just by thinking of that, let alone I can't imagine if I gave in to that. But I'm not going to give in to it. So you just bring it on. I've roughed him up when I've just wanted to keep the peace. Haven't you roughed him up a time or two in your life? Second thing I want us to see is that the crowd didn't offer any valid evidence against Jesus. They just shouted louder. 
please, all four Gospels, any place do you see this crowd offering any evidence themselves to support these charges or any other charge besides loving them against Jesus? And my friends, that's true of the crowd today. Crowds, they don't offer any evidence. Crowds, whether they're political, scientific, the crowd of higher education, elitism, or just a mad, angry crowd, when the crowd isn't getting what they want, instead of turning up the facts, they turn up the volume. Instead of getting more accurate, they get louder. My friends, we see this all the time. We have an eyeball to the world, an eyeball that I'd like to poke out sometimes because I'm not for sure that it does us much good. But what it should be doing is it should make us very much aware of this dilemma and this reality that we are in today. You see, it has not gotten any better since 2,000 years ago. What's going down right here in front of Pontius Pilate is going right down in front of us today. Any evidence that the crowd does vomit out is quickly refuted. Any crowd. But then evidence doesn't really matter. What matters is that the crowd gets what they want. Whether that's crowds 10 people, 50 people, even thousands of people. Let me, let me tell you, that crowd is nothing. That crowd is nothing compared to the population total, but yet who is it that we listen to? This small group, these little ants that are doing nothing to offer us any evidence, any truth, at best a half-truth that they've taken and twisted. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is being falsely accused of insurrection. Barabbas, who was actually guilty of insurrection. Barabbas, a murderer who has taken life away. Jesus, who's giving his life that others may live. But yet in verse 18, it says, with one voice, this crowd cried out. Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now, what's ironic is that the name Barabbas, how many of you know what your name means when you're, Mom and dad, anybody nicknamed accident in the room? <laughs> right, we, we, we don't just overtly name a per. I'll tell you, I have some, heard some pretty overt names, <clears throat> and there's no question where that name came from, but Barabbas, I guess I could guess a few things, but it wouldn't be accurate. Um, but bear, anyway, Luke explains, not, not Luke, but Josephus explains that Barabbas means son of the father. Son, son of the father? Jesus, who's the true son of the father, and Barabbas, the son of a father? And the crowd doesn't see the tragic irony in all of this. Pilate knows they're ridiculous, but they don't see it. Pilate, in verse 20, he appeals to them again. He's saying, hey, listen, guys, this man's innocent, but they keep shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate speaks to them. What crime has he committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty, no grounds for the cross. I'm going to slap his wrists and I'm going to release him. But verse 23, 
With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that Christ be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. I've got to tell you, that verse hit me hard in my study Monday morning when I was writing this sermon. Their shouts prevailed. Am I the only one who's gotten tired of the crowd's shouts prevailing in this world? (laughs) And let me make it clear to you, I don't care if these crowds win something. That, that, that's on them. But what I do care about, what I do care about is I am so saddened when those shouts reach your ears and you buy into the lies because you've been unwilling to know the truth about Christ and follow your conscience. That's what makes me sad. And that's what I'm fighting for, for you and with you, is that you will know the truth because you lose that moment that should have been so special when the crowd wins. You lose the joy of knowing in your heart that you did the right thing when you let the crowd win. You lose courage to take a stand the next time you're confronted with the lie when you let the crowd win in your life. You lose self-respect when you let the crowd win in your heart. And some of you are losing your salvation because you can continue to reject God for the crowd in your life. And you say, lose my salvation. Yes, I said it. You're falling. And the Apostle Paul said, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. But you're falling for the crowd. And you're falling from his grace. And that is serious because rejecting the truth of who Jesus Christ is, it's going to cost you everything that matters. Everything. According to the historian Flavius Josephus, Pilate would later take his own life some five years later under the orders of the very emperor that he was trying to save face with. (laughs) This man who chose the crowd over his own conscience and desperation would take his life. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Here's the third thing that I want us to see, and it's obvious by now, and that is that Pilate chose the crowd over Christ. He chose the crowd over Christ. And he chose him over his own conscience. <laughs> do, do, you, you know that feeling. I, I, I do. Not just choosing the crowd over Christ, but choosing the crowd over what you believe in your heart is right and is true. And that is a damning weight. That is heavy. That is heavy. Pilate, he had a decision to make. He was at a fork in the road, and he chose the crowd over his own conscience. Verse 24 is so tragic. It says, so Pilate chose to grant their demand. But have you thought about it? He had stood face to face with Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. He had looked God in the eyes And he was convinced in his heart of hearts that he is who he said that he is. And he goes against what he knows is right. And then verse 25, he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. 
the one they ask for and surrender Jesus to their will. Every one of us in this room are going to feel those moments in our life. We're going to be up against that pilot predicament in our life. When we feel the pressure of the moment, God will give us and has given us ample time to examine Jesus Christ. In fact, this morning you have been given an ample description of who Jesus Christ is, be it not a lot, but you have given it because of that one day when you stand before God and you want to plea, I, I didn't really know God. God, I, I, I thought I was doing the right thing by saving face. I, I just didn't feel like I should take a stand. Like, What if I lose my child if I, if I just require them while they're under the authority of my household to, to go to church? I, I was just afraid I was going to lose them. And one day you're going to stand before God and you can plea all you want to and he's going to say, well, on September 10th, I had Dave tell you about him. You had your chance. It's what he's going to tell you. You see, through his word, through his people, God gives us time to examine Christ. And some of us have had a long time to examine him. Others... Others of you, God bless you. I am so glad that you're here because you're just, you're finally saying yes to that part of you that longs to know him and you're searching for truth. You're searching for evidence. You keep going and you keep looking because he will reveal it to you, but he does that right here through his word. He does it through the preaching. How will they know, right? How will they know unless the word is preached? You're on the right path. But we all, at moments in time, we all have a little bit of power of influence. We have it at our, with our peers at school. We have it at home. We have it at work. Different seasons of our life, he gives us influence. And all of that's going to be put on the line at times. The crowd, whether it's one person in your own mind, you, sometimes you're the crowd. Or whether it's dozens of people on Facebook, I don't know why you open yourself up to their opinions. They don't matter anyway whether it's something that you see on TV, a political party, we're all gonna have moments where the crowd's gonna shout and they're gonna get louder and louder and we're gonna feel the pressure to succumb. We're gonna feel the pressure at that fork in the road moments to choose. And I simply ask you, are you gonna choose what you know in your heart of hearts to be true? Or are you gonna choose the crowd? Last weekend, James Helm on Saturday night was baptized because he stopped listening to the crowd that said, hey, James, you've been here before. You've been here before and you did not follow through with your commitment. He said, I'm not listening to the crowd anymore. I'm going to follow you. And he was baptized and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Last Sunday morning, I was sitting right over here listening to Bigelow just do a great, great job when Heather Crane came down the aisle. Heather, who's with us again this morning. And I know just a little bit about Heather's story. 
I know just a little bit about Heather's story. She's always believed, but now she's, she's putting her feet to the ground, right? She's, she's really desiring to see that truth played out in her life. She's testing that truth. And I saw her come up, and I saw her whisper to Bigelow, and Bigelow handed a card, and then she took off, and so Bigelow had to chase her down, right? But I saw this woman who desires no attention, and I know I'm probably making her flush right now. It's good for you, Heather. But I saw her come back up to the front and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, and I've accepted him as Savior, but now he's Lord of my life, and I want to be part of a church family. And in that moment, she said no to this crowd right here, and she said yes to him. Sunday night, I had the opportunity to drive up off Underwood Road to go to a gentleman's house and his family who's been attending worship here at the invitation of one of our other families, Damon Smith, and he was baptized in his neighbor's pond in front of his friends and his family and those who have known him all of his life. He said no. He said no to all the reasons why he could have not gotten in that water. And he said yes to the truth of Jesus Christ. It has happened this week in many of your daily fork of the road moments. You've chosen truth over the shouts. And my friends, it can happen right now. It can happen right now. But the choice is yours. Now, there's one other reality that we have not covered in this text today that is very important for us to understand. And that is, why was Jesus so silent? Not just in one trial, but in all three trials. Why didn't he stand up and plead his innocence? What do people do in the courtroom every day that are caught in the act? They're on videotape doing these things. And yet, what do they do? They stand before the judge and they say, I'm, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I didn't do those things. They flat out boldly lie. And Jesus, who knew the truth, he didn't say a word. Why? Because in that moment, Pilate needed to decide for himself whether he was going to listen to what he knew in his heart and in his soul was true, or whether he was going to listen to the crowd. Why Barabbas? Why let Barabbas go free? Because Barabbas is you and I. Barabbas represents every filthy thing. The reality that we are guilty of sin in our lives. And yet Jesus quietly determined to rescue you and I today did for Barabbas physically what he does for us spiritually in setting him free. Now please tell me, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the one who gave his life for yours? Are you going to keep listening to the crowd? Please tell me, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to respond to? Who are you going to live for? Jesus Christ. Now quit being timid about it and live it. Amen. Okay. You did that at a crowd, these crazy fools that play at these rock musics, they'd walk off stage. 
Take a stand for Jesus Christ. I love you guys. And I do not want you to suffer the consequences of giving in to the crowd. I am so tired of it in my life. And I know you are too. Say yes to him today. Receive him in the spirit in baptism. Come and receive the encouragement of a family that will stand by you and that will love you no matter how filthy you come to him. Just like God, we see you as he does, a brand new creation. <laughs> the old is gone, it's in the past, the new has come. Let's celebrate and let's party together. Let's live it together. You need someone to pray with you. You're at that fork of the road moment. Listen, my friends, I've been there multiple times this week. I'm so glad I didn't go with the crowd. <laughs> but later today, I might wish I had. <laughs> but because of you, because of a family that believes and loves him, because of what Jesus Christ did, <laughs> no way, no way. Come, respond to him.